Romans chapter 4. Our last verse was verse 12 of Romans chapter 4, and I'm really glad that the original manuscripts had no chapter headings, chapter markings, so that it really doesn't matter where we begin and where we end in this book. It'd be nice if we could end at chapter 4 and then begin in chapter 5, but we've been seeming to just sort of pick up the middle of the chapter and hit the middle of the next chapter, but um, as I said, there were no uh, chapter breaks in the original document. It was just sentence, line upon line, and so we left off at verse 12, and there was a key verse that we sort of hammered in on, and that's in verse 5 where it says, but to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted or imputed for righteousness. It seems that every human being has a feeling of guilt over his or her life. It's a very common emotion to feel guilty about things. There was a speaker who is a Christian and speaks to businessmen around the country, usually in secular business settings. And these are the kind of businessmen that are uh, high in the corporate world, very well-known, very well-connected, very wealthy, responsible. And he says he always asks a question to these guys or gals, usually one-on-one, something to the effect of, do you ever have thoughts in the middle of the night when you're all alone of what would happen if people found out the truth about me? And he said that never fails to get a response. As if people realize, yeah, you know, here I am, Mr. Corporate, Mr. Somebody, but if they only knew the truth about me. There's that sense of guilt that we have as we live this life. Now, there is a a fundamental and important reason for that, and that is because we are guilty. That's it. We are guilty. All men are born lost. And with that sense of lostness comes a sense of guilt. We can't always put our finger on exactly why it is, but then we go through life seeking somehow to cope and to deal with that feeling of guilt. And people try different methods. They try to philosophize it away or counsel it away. The best way is to be square with it and to deal with it and say, I'm guilty as charged. Because when we admit that, then we can begin to understand the gospel of a foreign righteousness, one that doesn't come from ourselves, one that doesn't come from keeping a law, a code, a set of standards, one that is given from the outside, freely imputed to us. God justifies the ungodly. We have been dealing with the law. We've been dealing with circumcision. We've been dealing with Abraham who was justified before the law ever came, before circumcision was ever given. We read last week that he believed God after God gave him a promise, and it was counted, legizomai is the Greek word, counted unto him for righteousness, imputed. It's not that he was righteous, it's that he was counted as righteous. The law, we're going to see, it's going to be mentioned many times in Romans, was never given by God as a solution for man's sin. 
The law is no solution. In fact, the law is simply an accentuation of the problem. You read the law and you don't go, oh, yeah, I'm going to keep that law and I feel so much better. Because I know people who try to keep religious rituals, laws, regulations, and somehow it's like, man, I didn't do quite enough. I don't feel quite holy enough. Well, when is enough enough? Perfection. And so we go through life with that sense of guilt. The law, said Paul in the book of Galatians, was a schoolmaster. That's his word, a schoolmaster, a tutor. The Greek, prototokos, one who would grab you by the hand and gently lead you to the place of maturity. But once you come to that place of maturity, once he's tutored you in the fundamentals, then you're released. The law was the schoolmaster. It kept us under parameters, under wraps. It told us the truth about ourselves until Christ came and he fulfilled the law. And now we don't need the law, the schoolmaster, any longer as a standard of righteousness because we realize nobody kept it. I can't keep it. But he could and he did. And so all of his righteous living and atonement by his death has been put to our account. That's what we've been discussing a little bit uh, last week. Now, uh, it would help for us to come to grips with that. It would, it would save us a lot of problems because there's a few ways you can go about it. When you're, when you're confronted with guilt, you can, number one, not admit it, deny it, cover it up, brush it aside, put it under the rug, then say, I don't need to deal with that, I'm not guilty. That's what David did, didn't he? David sinned with Bathsheba. What did he do? He tried to cover it up. He called for Uriah, her husband, from the battlefield. Tried to get him drunk. Say, hey man, uh, you've been out on the battlefield a long time. Go home with your wife, Bathsheba. You, know, you haven't seen her in a long time. You could spend a few days with her. And... So he sauced him up and tried to get him to sleep with his wife. But he goes, oh, I can't do it. My brethren are out there in the field and I just feel like it would be betraying them if I were to go and have a nice evening with my wife while they're out on the battlefield. I'll just sleep out here outside on the steps. And that didn't work, so he sought to cover up his sin more by sending Uriah to the front lines and telling Joab, put him in the heat of the battle, let him get killed. And then as soon as he was killed, he took the wife that he slept with of Uriah, Bathsheba, and took her home to be with him. And he succeeded in covering up for several months, almost a year, until Nathan knocked on his door one day, told him the parable of the rich guy with the lamb and the poor guy that had one little sheep. And you know how the story goes. And he was busted. He was laid bare. And the book of Proverbs says, Whoever conceals his sin shall not prosper, but whoever confesses it and forsakes it shall find mercy. So you can cover it up when you have that feeling of guilt. Number two, you can admit that you have guilt and seek a self-righteousness. I will do certain things, and when I do those things, I will feel better about myself. I'm going to go buy a self-help book, or I'm going to uh, find a mantra, or I'm going to meditate on my navel, or I'm going to work my mental way through this problem. A third response to the guilt 
you can admit it, and utterly despair. Woe is me, I am undone. Well, you need to come to that point, but if you live there, you're not much fun to hang around with. It's best if you admit it and come to the cross and get the guilt complex dealt with, be forgiven, and move on. And so, the cross of Jesus Christ is the major threshold issue of our lives, the cross. That is your home. That's where you find forgiveness. That's where the guilt is alleviated. The cross of Christ. There's a great story about an officer, a police officer in northern England by the name of Peter O'Hanlon, who was walking his beat one evening, pitch darkness, and he heard crying coming from a public building, and he went over to the public building. There on the steps was a little boy weeping. The little boy looked up at the officer and said, Take me home, I'm lost. The officer didn't know where he lived. Asked him, the boy couldn't remember his address, so the officer started rattling off names of streets, hoping that it would breed familiarity, and the kid would go, That's my street. Named street after street. Didn't work, so he started thinking of public buildings stores, bakeries, anything the kid couldn't remember. Then the officer thought that there in the middle of town was this huge cathedral, and on the steeple a large white cross lit at night. So he picked the little boy up, held him in his arms, put him up on his shoulder, and pointed in the distance to the cross toward the center of town. He said, do you see that church? Do you live anywhere near that? And the little boy smiled. Recognizing the cross, he said, yes, take me to the cross. I can find my way home from there. And so we always need to be brought to the cross. That's what Paul does in Romans. He shows that all mankind is lost. Whether you're a moralist, whether you're religious, whether you're all-out pagan, all are consigned under the judgment of God. So that in despair, we go, well, now what? And we see the cross. And we're driven to the cross because that's where we find our home, forgiveness. We admit that we're sinners. We come to the cross, we're washed, and then we move on from there. Now, the chapter that's before us, chapter 4, introduces Abraham. And then David is mentioned a little bit further down in verse 6. And then in verse 9 onward, Abraham is mentioned again. And the covenant of circumcision is mentioned. And as we said last week, the reason being is because in bringing up David, somebody would read this and say, oh, well, David lived under the covenant of the circumcision. And so he goes back before circumcision, the time of Abraham, Genesis chapter 15, and shows that even before circumcision was given to Abraham, in fact, 15 years before Abraham received the ritual of circumcision, he was already declared righteous by God. So it's not a ritual. In fact, in a very strict Jewish sense, Abraham was a Gentile when he was declared righteous by God, not Jewish at all. Now, he's the father of the Jewish nation. But think of it. He was 75 years old in chapter 11 and 12 when he was called, Genesis 11 and 12, when he was called out of Iraq or of the Chaldees. 
In Genesis chapter 15, he was 85 years old when he complained to God, and then God said, come here, look outside, look at all those stars. See all those stars? Your offspring is going to be more than you can count in the heavens. I'm going to bless you. You're going to have a family. Nations will come from you. And it says, he believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It wasn't until 15 years later, in Genesis chapter 17, when God said, Abraham, you're 99 years old. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will establish my covenant with you. And here's the sign, circumcision. Now in hearing that, one might say, well, if righteousness then comes without the law or before the law, if righteousness comes before circumcision, and you're righteous just by believing, what is the point of God instituting the ritual of circumcision? Very simply, it is a sign. That's it. It's a seal. It's a sign of ownership. It's a reminder of the promise. It's a reminder that righteousness comes by faith. That's all it is. It's it's nothing more than that. Every time God makes covenants that we read in the Bible, the old covenants, he establishes it with a sign. So that when you look at the sign, you're reminded of the substance, the reality. And thus it was with circumcision. Verse 13, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, Faith is made void, and the promise is made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Makes sense. There's no law, there's no sin. Now, the freeways have posted signs on them. Speed limit signs. They're 55 in town. If you get on the open road, they're 75. Now, it's been raised. Before it was lower, it was 65. It was put down to 55, and, you know, people complained, so it's now raised up to 75 in the open road. When people drive, generally, they rationalize when they drive. They drive faster than they should, and they always say, well, I'm allowed five miles over, so they, they push it. They have the speed limit, but that's not the limit to them. They push the limit a little bit because they think that's the grace, mercy thing, the five miles an hour. So if it's 75, I can go up to 80 and I'll be all right. We, you do think like that, right? We do, don't we? Now, there was a time in our country when there was not anything like posted speed limit signs. You go any, any speed you want. In fact, uh, One time um, I landed in Austria, and I had to be in Germany the next day, and we had a flight schedule, but it was delayed, so I was with Franklin Graham, and we decided, hey, you know, there's the Autobahn here. Let's rent a car in Austria, and we'll just go as fast as we can to Germany. There's no speed limit at all. So we were doing 120, 122, 125. It was cool. (laughs) I loved it. Because I was doing that and I was not breaking the law. Where there is no law, there's no transgression, nothing to break. I was with my wife the other night. She was driving the car. 
and a policeman pulled us over. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she hadn't gotten a ticket for, I don't know, 15 years. She has a great driving record, and it's funny because it's not that she always keeps the speed limit, but she's managed to escape wrath for a long time. So <laughs> the lights are on, I thought, that's it, you're going to get it tonight. And so the officer said, do you know what the speed limit is on the street? She said, I don't know. Now, her not knowing is not an excuse because it is posted. There is a law, and there is a law officer to enforce the law. Were there no sign, were there no law, you don't get pulled over. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. So the officer, let me see your driver's license, checked her her out and said, well, you know, you have such a spotless record, so I won't give you a ticket. You just get a warning. So, But before the giving of the law, 430 years, we read in the book of Galatians, Abraham was accounted righteous by God. Okay, but then the law came. It says, uh, the law brings about what? Wrath. Moses came along, the lawgiver, and Moses hung out the speed limit signs in life. The thou shalt not, now that was given by God on Sinai, not only the Ten Commandments, but all of the law that the Jews seek to keep. In effect, it was all of the stop signs and the speed limit signs and the yield signs in life. Because, as the Bible says, the law is not given for righteous people, but for lawbreakers. And since mankind is by nature lawbreakers, imposed is the law so that we know what laws we broke and how far we've come short. Therefore, this is important. No one can ever be made righteous by the law. The law simply is a mirror to show us how bad off we are. Because all of us have broken the law. The law of Moses as well as the local speed limit laws. Therefore, it is of faith. That it might be according to grace. That is unmerited favor, freely bestowed. So that the promise might be sure or certain to all seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. We are not justified because we keep the law. We are justified because we believe the promise. And his point is this. It's not just given by keeping the law. It's not given by keeping the law. If that were so, then what about all the people that aren't living under the law of Moses? so many other cultures, so many other places. And so it's by believing the promise on all the seed. And here's the word, that the promise might be sure. Okay, now imagine. If your righteousness were predicated on your ability to keep the law, how sure would it be? Well, it would depend, wouldn't it? If you kept the law perfectly, implicitly, you go, sigh of relief, man, I'm righteous. But the moment you step out of bounds and cross over that line, whether you do it on purpose or not, you've still broken it. Then you're not sure. You're not secure. Oh, no. This is the great thing. Because it's by faith, I trust in the finished work of Christ. It's sure, man. It's certain. It's secure. You know, you don't have to go to bed at night and worry, did I keep all the little laws? Did I love everybody today? Did I forgive everybody? Did I say a bad word? What if I wake up in hell tomorrow because I didn't do something right? None of that. Perish the thought. That's not security. Because it's by faith in the promise, 
it is indeed secure. I had somebody come up to me one time and say, well, how do you know you're saved? I said, well, I was there when it happened. I watched the whole thing. And I described to him, this is where I was, this is how I felt, and I knew when I put my faith in Jesus, in his work on the cross, I knew that I was forgiven. I had that guilt leave. It was alleviated. It was taken away. I remember the afternoon and crying out to God and the assurance that God gave me. And so it is certain. It is, it is secure. Abraham, the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. That is so cool. It is so classic. He calls the things that do not exist as if they did. For instance, the beginning of the verse, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. Now, he said that, that's past tense, before he even had a child. I have made you father. I'm not even a dad yet. And you've made me a father of many nations? Yes. Because God has a unique attribute called precognition, he knows everything in advance. To him, Isaac was existing. He was as good as born. You know, we're trapped by the time and space dimension. We think in terms of past, present, and future. God doesn't have to. Everything's the eternal present to him. So God can speak in the prophetic past. An example of that, Isaiah 53, the servant of the Lord. Um, he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. All of that is the prophetic past. It's written about as if it happened, but it was prophesying the sufferings of Christ. So God, as far as he was concerned, Isaac already existed. It's done. I'm God. It's going to happen. You may not believe it. Whatever. Of course, he did believe that God would fulfill his promise, but it's going to happen. God calls those things as if they already happened, which do not exist as though they did. I'll tell you why I get excited about that. Because you're going to read later on in the book of Romans, chapter 8, that God says, whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified, past tense. All in one sweeping movement. Predestined, called, justified, glorified. Now, I'm not yet glorified. I know you know this already. <laughs> Believe me, I'm not. You could ask my wife, my son. No, no, he's not glorified yet. But in God's mind, the plan of salvation is from beginning to end. His mind is as good as done. Glorified. And then we read in the book of Jude, chap there's only one chapter, verse 24, chapter 1. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Faultless. Now I'm not faultless. But I will be presented faultless, guaranteed. So the precognition of God, he calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Now beginning in verse 18, 
we have four keys to Abraham's faith. They're mentioned. Who, contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. It says, who, contrary to hope. First key, he ignored the physical conditions, the physical impossibilities. He's 99 years old. His wife's in her 90s. People that age don't have children. It's impossible. But we're dealing with God, right? You bring God into the equation, you have to adjust your view of what is possible and not possible. Who, contrary to hope, in hope, believed. Have you noticed that whenever we have a problem in our life come up, immediately our minds start moving? That's just the way we're made. It's natural. It's normal. And, and hu humans are ingenious. God has made us amazing creatures, amazing people. We can figure out things, invent things, and it's awesome. In, in the image of God, it, it's, it shows up every day. But... As long as we can figure out the solution to the problem, no problem. It's okay. I have faith. I can figure it out. It's not faith, but we, oh, I believe God. I, it'll, this or that could happen. Probably will. If we can't figure it out, that's when we panic. I know. I trust God. Pray all that stuff. But if we can't figure it out, we figure, how can God figure it out? That's our biggest problem. How could God figure that out? I can't. Duh. I mean, come on. <laughs> we fail to bring God into the equation so many times. We go to the doctor's office, and the doctor says, you know what? It's very serious. In fact, it's fatal. You've got two weeks to live. We panic. Imagine... Sarah going to the pediatrician, <laughs> obstetrician. She's in the waiting room with Abraham. And of course, they look awkward, their age, being in there. Somebody sees them, they go, uh, are you great, great, great grandparents? Uh, no, we're here because uh, we're trying to get pregnant. <laughs> oh, really? And how old are you? I'm um, 99. We really want to have a child. So they see the doctor, and the doctor says, what can I do for you? And Sarah says, you know, we really want to have a child. The doctor says, man, you went through menopause 40 years ago. This is impossible. <laughs> oh, no, but I, I, I really want a son. I really believe I'm going to have a son. He would say, ma'am, great. Go home and dream all about it. Against all hope, contrary to hope, in hope he believed, so that he became the father of many nations. My ways are not your ways, says the Lord. Jericho was an impossibility. The Red Sea was an impossibility. This covenant was an impossibility. But key to his faith, number one, is he ignored the physical limitations. In verse 19, and not being weak in faith... He did not consider his own body, notice, already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. You say, well, that's sort of, 
That's not nice to call somebody dead. I mean, he wasn't dead. He was a hundred, but, you know, he had some life in him. In fact, some translations say, didn't consider his body as good as dead. But from a reproductive standpoint, this verse is introduced. From a reproductive standpoint, he was dead, and she was dead too. It's not going to happen. You know why God delayed giving them the promise of, of a son, Isaac? God could have given it to him years ago. The reason God delayed in giving them Isaac is so that their natural capabilities would decline to the extent that they were dead. Physically impossible to have a child. So that when God would fulfill the promise, it was unmistakably God. It wasn't like, ooh, wasn't that a great physician who helped us that day, Abraham? He, he was really, you know, sharp. Or, boy, you know, we still have it in us. And, you know, wow, we're, you know... Against all odds, look what happened. No, it was absolutely impossible. The delay brought them to a death. And there's a principle in that. God saves people when they admit they're dead. As long as there's a little life left in you, you're a little okay, you're spiritual, you're good enough, you will not be saved. You are only saved when you say, I am unrighteous. I am dead in my sins, dead in my trespasses. I can't become righteous. Oh God, save me. That's when you repent. That's when you turn around. I'm good as good as the next person. I'm a religious. You know. Sorry. It's when you admit you're dead. In fact, when Abram admitted his death, his, this impossibility, that's when God began to work in his body. Chapter 17. Hey, I'm going to establish my covenant with you. In fact, your wife Sarah, in a year's time, is going to have a baby. And he laughed. Shall a woman who's 90 year old, years old have a kid? It's going to happen, Abraham. It's going to happen. Then God began to work in his body when he came to admit that it was impossible. Verse 20 is the second key to his faith. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. He refused the tendency toward unbelief which always comes up during these cases. The impossible looms on the horizon and the emotions and the spirit move toward unbelief. He refused the tendency of unbelief. How many promises of God come our way that we look at them and go, oh, that's, that's, it looks great underlined. And I'm sure God would do that for people like Elijah, but not me. 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter talks about whereby have been given unto us exceedingly great and precious promises that by these you might be a partaker of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. They're exceedingly great. They're exceedingly precious. But they're exceedingly valueless unless you apprehend them by faith. He did not stagger or he did not waver at the promise. Also in verse 20 is the third key to his faith. He glorified God. He said, uh, but he was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. Something like, oh, Lord, I do believe you. I do trust you. Thank you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. 
There's a great book uh, I would recommend to you is the autobiography of George Mueller. It's been given several titles, but it's a, here's a guy of faith who lived last century in England, Bristol, England, and he ran the Bristol Orphanage. And by faith, he brought in kids who were orphans and cared for them. He had hundreds of them. But he always lived by faith, and he made it his point never to let his needs be known financially. He wasn't the kind to write the newsletter, and by the way, we could really help use your help this month. Your seed faith gift would be much appreciated. And uh, he just didn't believe in that. Instead, he says, you know what? I'm going to let God know my needs and nobody else. If God can't take care of me, then good, I'll die. I, I shouldn't be in this ministry. That was his approach. And you ought to read his stories. A story that happened on many occasions. They had no food. They had no drink. He'd make the kids set the table, sit down, and give thanks. Imagine, silverware's out there, the plates are out there, glasses, nothing's on the table besides that. Let's pray and give thanks to God. And he would write stories of how there would be a knock on the door before the prayer ended or at the end of the prayer, and the guy would say, you know, I own a milk business, and the milk truck broke down, and it's outside here, and, you know, the, can't get the horses to go, and the milk's going to spoil. Could you use any? I have a whole truckload. The guy said, sure. Food, same thing would happen. People would donate food or something would happen in transit. And he would give glory to God and he would always recognize that the source is God. We give glory to God whether we see it or not. And God would always bless. Tremendous lessons of faith. So that's the third key. Give glory to God. Now, I got to confess, I don't, <laughs> I don't always do that. I fail in this area. When I was living in California, in San Bernardino, California, going to school in medical training at the local hospital, San Bernardino County Medical Hospital, it was a UCLA program, there were some very lean times. And I remember I'd cash my check, I'd buy my groceries, and I knew when the next check was coming, and I knew that I was running out of groceries. Okay, Lord, you know, you're God. And I remember one time I was down to peanut butter, a jar of Skippy peanut butter, and uh, bread. And uh, I, I could have peanut butter breads for my meals. That's all I had left. So I'd butter the breads, eat them, sandwich. Ran out of jelly, just had the peanut butter bread. Then I ran out of bread. And I just had peanut butter, so I'd take a spoon down to the wire. Then one day, in fact, it was on that day, I looked at the mail, and wouldn't you know it, just when I needed it, my income tax check came in the mail. I got money back in those days. <laughs> and I looked at this check, and I said, oh, yeah, and I started getting really happy and just, you know, all excited. I can not only buy groceries, but I can get some other cool stuff that I wanted. I was going to go cash the check. And it was like the, the Lord spoke to me. So how come you didn't get this excited a couple days ago? And you had my promise that I would provide for you. All you have is a little check from the federal government, the U.S. Treasury. And the U.S. Treasury is promising you so much money. How do you know they're going to give it to you? Well, it's a, it's 
It's a check, God. It's a, they promise. It's in writing. And again, it's like the Spirit of God spoke to me. It's in writing right here. You've had it all along. You never jumped for joy and got excited when I promised you all along that I'd take care of you. You were wondering and worried if I would. E, conviction right to the heart. Didn't give glory to God on that one. And being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. It's the fourth key of his faith. He considered the source of the promise. The source is God. God can do anything. How big is your God? Can your God take care of you? Can your God pay your rent? If you're a child of God tonight, let me guarantee you, none of you will starve to death this week. You might not be able to get the new DVD player, and you might say, oh, God's not providing. But you won't starve. God is big. He can do anything exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. I would say that your outlook is determined by your uplook. As long as you're looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, who is able to do anything exceedingly abundantly, your outlook will improve. If all you're looking at is the circumstances, apart from the uplook, you're going to mope. Great story about Martin Luther. He's a father of the faith, but here's a true story about him. He was moping around the house for days at a time, and it really bugged his wife. Katie was her name. So one day Katie decided to wear a black dress, black shoes, black veil, dressed all in black like a funeral. And Martin Luther looked and said, Katie, is it a funeral? Who died? And Katie said, Martin, God is dead. And he said, what? What do you mean God is dead? So she said, well, you know, judging from the way you've been acting around the house lately, I must concur that God is dead. And it really convicted him that he's been living, talking about new life, and, and yet he hasn't been living in it. And that really shook and inspired him so that he wrote on the wall of his study the Latin word vivit, he lives, as a reminder in those down times. He lives. He's able. If he can conquer death by resurrection, he can do anything I need. And so, that fourth key to his faith, that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. That's the key. Do you believe? Not automatically justified, but do you believe? Do you place your full faith, your full trust in him? who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the proof that we were justified. Because in the resurrection from the dead, it proved that God accepted the atoning sacrifice of his son so that righteousness could be imputed. Remember what Jesus said when he said, um, when the Spirit of God has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to the Father and you see me no more. It was the resurrection and the ascension that showed that God accepted the sacrifice on the cross 
And the righteousness was enough to be able to impute. So he was delivered up for our, because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Therefore, this is one of Paul's favorite styles of writing. He will make several uh, thoughts tied together and then he will have an application. Therefore, because of these things, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's read a a few more verses to get the context. Through him, or through whom also, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Let's say... say, um, I go into the courtroom, and God the Father is the judge. And I'm trembling because the prosecuting attorney is Satan, and he's got the goods on me. He's got a record of my whole life. And so Satan's up there with his snarl, and he says, I call as my first witness Moses. And Moses comes up there and rattles off the Ten Commandments, probably the only one who can do it. We all forget them, it seems, from time to time. He rattles off the Ten Commandments, and with each commandment, I go, oh, I remember when I blew that one. Every time I somehow failed in my life keeping all the commandments. And Satan says, Your Honor, this man, Skip, has broken your commandments time and time again. Moses leaves, and then I call as my second witness, Skip's mother. Of course, what everybody else forgets, mom chooses to forget, but somehow it's still lodged in her memory, and she's under oath, so she has to tell about the time I was kicked out of school because I brought the blow gun and shot somebody with a blow dart and was you know, expelled, and, and what happened later on in high school, and the drug charges, and the uh, arrests, and so forth, and you know, I'm just going, oh, I hate this, I don't want to be here. And on and on and on, all of the evidence is there. I'm trembling. Next to me is my defense attorney, Jesus. Don't worry, piece of cake. (laughs) So it's his turn. He, with great confidence, steps up toward the bench, and he lays his elbow on the bench because it's his dad. And says, Your Honor, Dad. All of the things of which my client is accused, are absolutely true. In fact, there are several things that were left out in today's hearing. <laughs> All of the thoughts and the intents of his heart were not mentioned. But you should also know, and I submit to you as my evidence, my blood which was shed for him. He's guilty of all of the above and more, but I paid the capital punishment of which he deserved, I paid. And here's the evidence, my blood. Gavel goes down, judge winks at me, says, case dismissed. Now, rather than trembling, it's like, ah, peace. Why? Because I've been acquitted. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He did it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. That brings peace. I have the peace of God now, or peace with God. 
There are two types of peace the New Testament describes. There is peace with God. There is then the peace of God. Every child of God has peace with God. That means you've raised the white flag. You've surrendered. You're not at war with God any longer. You agree with God. You've confessed your sins. You've been cleansed. There's no war. You're at peace with God. You've made your peace with God. There's a second type of peace, the peace of God. Not every child of God experiences that. It's what Paul mentioned in Philippians, be anxious for nothing, but in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard or actually lay garrison in your hearts against those thoughts. Every Christian has peace with God a lot of Christians I know don't live in that peace. One should lead ultimately to the other. Knowing that you're not at war with God anymore should place such confidence in your heart toward your Heavenly Father. There is no war. You've been acquitted. And yet we don't experience it. It's just like the love of God. Oh yeah, I know God loves me. Really? Like right now when you just said that? Well... You see, God loves everyone, but I know lots of people who don't experience God's love. It's like, you can, it's like the sun. The sun is always shining during the daytime, but you could walk outside with an umbrella and block the effect of the sun on your body. And we can have an umbrella of sin and of unbelief where we're not experiencing the love of God. Hence, Jude said, keep yourself in the love of God. And I would say keep yourself in the peace of God. Recognize the war's over. God doesn't hold anything against you. If he loved you when you were El Cripo, now that you're his child, does he love you less? There's a relationship now. So, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The justification, again, you know what that means? Justified, never sinned. That's how God looks at you. You have sinned. I have sinned. But he treats you just as if you have not. That's pretty awesome. First benefit is peace. Second benefit, I have access. In ancient times, you couldn't just go up to the castle and knock on the door and say, I want to see the king. I have an audience with a monarch. You couldn't do that. You'd get killed unless... The king were to raise his scepter to you. If he didn't raise his scepter, you could be killed. But in raising the scepter, he accepted you. Jesus brings access to God. He is our peace, Ephesians says, who has broken down the middle wall of partition so that you can come in any time boldly before the throne of God. You can have access. You don't have to come timidly. Oh, God, I'm not worthy. And I'm... Of course you're not worthy. But Jesus imputed his righteousness to you, therefore come boldly. And I think it's insulting to say, well, I, I really have no right to talk to God. I, I can only talk to his mother or to some of the others, you know, who are the uh, intermediaries because, oh, I don't have any right to come to God. That person does not understand the gospel at all. You have access to all the resources of God into this grace in which we stand and Rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's the future. You have peace now. 
with God. You should have the peace of God. That should lead you to it. You have access into the presence of God at any, any time. And third, you rejoice, I hope. You get really happy about what's going to happen after this life. That's why the apostles said there was so much persecution going on in New Testament times. If we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most miserable. Think of all the martyrs who have suffered and are suffering now for their faith in Christ. They are living in the hope that there's something afterwards, a reward, heaven. And they rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And you know what I found? Every time a person comes to Christ and gets born again, I should rephrase that. It's not like you do that often. Every time a person, whenever a person comes to Christ, they get born again. God places a seed within that person. A seed grows, a seed of expectation, a seed of hope that one day I'm going to see the face of God. And they're never satisfied until they do. And you'll never be satisfied ultimately until you are in his presence. See the glory of God. Moses cried out after hearing the audible voice of God, seeing the miracles of God. He said, oh God, show me your glory. God said, Moses, I'd like to, but man, you'd kick the bucket if, if you saw you die. I can only pass by and you can see the hinder parts, the afterglow, my glory as it passes. But you can't, nobody can look at me and, and live in, in your fleshly state. Well, one day you'll be able to and you'll be satisfied. There's that seed that grows. I want to see his face one day, that intimacy with God. And one day you will. I love what the little girl said when she was walking with her grandpa out in the woods and seeing the beautiful stars against the blue velvet background of the sky. And she said, Grandpa, if heaven looks this beautiful on the wrong side, can you imagine how it looks on the right side? We have that hope that one day that fulfillment will come. Not only that, there's more, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. You think now, uh, wait a minute, Paul, I don't know if I agree with you on that. We glory in tribulations. We enjoy our trials. Are you nuts? To endure them is one thing, but to glory in them is quite another. And, and you might think Paul is a nut. Because if you've ever read Philippians, here he was in the Mamertine prison in Rome, quarantined in a dark pit. And he writes, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You think either a guy like that is absolutely nuts or he has tapped into something that I need. I learned in whatever state I am, state I am in that state to be content. How is it that we can rejoice in our tribulations? Because of the effect of them. They produce something. It's not like, I love pain. You're a little weird if, if you do. If you're that masochistic, then something's wrong. And that's not what he's speaking about. He's speaking of the effect of those trials in the life of the believer. They produce something. They're not dormant. It's like, who likes to go to the dentist? But we can rejoice going to the dentist because of the results in the end. You want to see those results. So what does the, the tribulation produce? It produces um, perseverance, 
And perseverance will produce character, and character hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. I've been doing a little reading on Samuel Rutherford lately. Samuel Rutherford lived in Scotland in the 17th century, 1600s. He was a preacher of God's word, a preacher of God's word, and he was banished to Aberdeen, northeast Scotland. And he wrote letters, and he preached from there. And in all of his afflictions, he wrote a classic little poem, little prose, that said, um, let, let me call it to my memory. Why should I tremble at the plow of my Lord that maketh deep furrows in my soul? He is no idle husbandman. He purposeth the crop. Once again, why should I tremble at the plow of my Lord that, that worketh deep furrows in my soul, cuts deep? He's no idle husband. He's not just doing this for no good reason. He wants a crop. He's trying to produce fruit. He purposeth the crop. And so these things are productive in our lives by the grace and by the glory of God. And by the way, a mark of real maturity is when you start rejoicing in your tribulation. You, anybody can go, I hate this, it's bad, it's crummy, where's God and all this? That's how infants react. You don't love me, Mom. <laughs> a sign of maturity is, yeah, this hurts, but I trust God. He's working something in me. And what? Perseverance. Hupamone is the Greek word, to bear up under, the ability to bear up under the trials of life and I think we all know that as life goes on and unfolds, the trials seem to get a little bit tougher. Until you reach old age, and it's been said, age, old age is not for sissies. You better have learned how to endure throughout life, because when you get to that age, that time, the trials come. The King James renders it patience. Have you ever asked God for patience? Have you ever said, you know, I'm so impatient. There was a story of a young minister who went to an older minister and said, man, you know, my biggest problem is I'm so impatient. Would you pray for me that I would get patience? And the older minister said, well, certainly, let's pray right now. And Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you will send this young man tribulations and afflictions and hardship. And the young guy said, wait a minute. Forget that. I don't want you to pray for that. I'm asking for patience. And he quoted this text. Tribulation worketh patience. You don't get patience by reading a book. How to have patience, 10 easy steps. <laughs> you have it by tribulation. It worketh patience or produces perseverance. By the Holy Spirit who is given to us.